Well, last year when we were back in Indiana for Christmas, we were just talking about, oh, you know, we'd like to have a dog. And, and uh, my brother was like, hey, you know, our friend Jim, he, he raises these. And I said, no, he raises golden retrievers. I've known this guy for like 25 years. He's always raised golden retrievers. And he was like, no, I think he raises golden doodles, which is what my wife was wanting to get. So we went over there, and lo and behold, they had a bunch of puppies. And so last Christmas, we picked out a little puppy and um, waited until the dog was weaned. And then we went back last February and picked up our dog, Sunny. She's been a great dog for us. And um, it's great having, it's nice having a dog. Puppies are hard, but it's nice having a puppy. One of the things that you get if you ever had a dog is you have to train the dog how to be housebroken. Otherwise, they're just going to pee in all over the place, you know. You know how it is. And uh, then we wanted the dog to be obedient. You know, we don't want a dog just doing whatever in the house. And so we, we watched a lot of training videos of how to get the dog to do what we want the dog to do. Basically, come when we call it, you know, maybe sit eventually. But we wanted the dog to be obedient. And this is what I learned by watching a bunch of training videos from the, from the animals. Because, see, I grew up in the, I grew up in the um, era of, like, if you want a dog to sit, you know, you make the dog sit. And you do not let the, physically do not let the dog get up, right? Well... They say you need positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is, is you, uh, every time you want the dog to do something, like you start with watching, then you give the dog a treat, right? Watch, the dog looks at you, give the dog a treat. Watch, looks at you, give the dog a treat. And once you get that down, then you do touch. You get the dog to touch, give the dog a treat. It's all about positive reinforcement. It's all about one, well, A equals B. The dog obeys, give him a treat. Dog obeys, give him a treat. Dog obeys, give him a treat. Until eventually you can do it out with distractions outside, right? Then you do it with another dog. Then you do it when the dog is walking. You can still do it. Sometimes you see people walking with a little pouch of treats because they say, touch, give the dog a treat while you're walking. Until eventually, little by little, nowadays, we don't have to give our dog, Sonny, a treat every time the dog just does it, right? It's called ingrained behavior. It's actually a thing called that behavioral scientists call conditioning. Now the dog has been conditioning to do what I say to do, regardless of whether or not it's going to get a treat. So I gave it a treat every other time, then I backed it off, backed it off, and backed it off until it's just now built into the dog, right? It's just built into the dog's personality that it will obey the dog, the dog will obey her master. And now she's a lot more she is well better behaved. She obeys just because it's who she is now. And now it's just kind of part of who she is. Ultimately, what happens now is, now this is better for the dog, right? It's better for us, but it really is better for the owner. And if you think about it, this kind of behavior reward system, think about how scientists do this with lab rats as well. Do you give it a treat? If it was just um, totally random, right? If it was totally, totally random, then the animal would never learn anything, would it? There has to be this A equals B type of reward, and you have to back it away. You have to do this positive training. If it was just totally random, the dog or lab rat or whatever would never learn anything. Well, here's the thing that I, I tell you this story to, to get you to think about, is that we are not animals, okay? We're not animals. We aren't lab rats. But a lot of us think that God works like this. Or deep down, we want God to work like this. But if God wanted to be some giant vending machine in the sky, then he would have devised this uniform payback system, like one good deed equals one blessing, or 10 prayers equals one answer, or one year of tithing gets you a, one promotion at work. But God has never been interested in just proper behavior. 
We know that from life. We know this from scripture, but that, that, that's, that's not how God operates, which is good because it's not about doing a good deed in order to get a treat from God. What God wants is us to have a relationship with him. God created us to have an eternal loving relationship with him. He made us. He loves us. It's about us trusting that he knows what's best for us, regardless of whether there's a treat or not, right? It's about enjoying time with him. You know, I go back to that story of the parable of the two sons that Jesus told. And what did he say is that the, at the end of the story, when the older son was like, why are you giving this celebration of the younger son who just threw everything away and just came back and expected to be totally forgiven? Why are you forgiving him and giving him a party? Like, I want a party too. And, God, and what is the, the father in the story is, is, is uh, represented by God the father. And what does he say to the son? I've always been with you. You've always had me. Our relationship has always been there. Didn't you see that that was the, that was the gift right there? You know, that was what was important. And the older son, who was always with the father, missed the point. Missed the point of what the father is trying to teach the son. is like, it's better to have a relationship with the father than to have a party. You know, our passage today teaches us that there is not always a connection between godly behavior and earthly rewards. There's not always a connection between godly behavior and earthly rewards. And this might sound a little counterintuitive to what you might hear uh, some Christian teaching. It might sound a little counterintuitive to what actually the author has even said here in the book. The author, which I believe also wrote the book of Proverbs, talked about how good it is to have wisdom, to live rightly, to live according to God's word, to live according to biblical standards. In fact, he goes on at the end of the chapter and says that wisdom is good, right? He already said that. So I'm not saying that there's not a benefit to gaining wisdom and living according to biblical principles. He's already said that. But if I was to summarize this whole chapter in one sentence, I would say the only certainty in life is death. The only certainty in life is death. But if we put our trust in God, we can fully enjoy life and have true hope we can fully enjoy life and have true hope so today i want to give you seven facts of life from ecclesiastes chapter 9 the chapter begins with the preacher teacher saying but all of this i laid to heart examining it examining it all now when he says all of this i laid to heart he could be referring to everything that he has said in chapters 1 through chapters 8 or he could just be referring to the conclusion of chapter 8 that he just got through saying. He goes on to say, I said all this, I've examined all this, i thought through all of this. And at the end of chapter 8, if you were here last week, if you want to look at the end of chapter 8, basically is saying, hey, look, if somebody says there's a wise person, they have everything figured out. They know all of the answers. Don't believe them. They don't know all the answers, all right? They're just blowing smoke. It's just a bunch. They don't know. They don't, so even if they say they have all the answers, don't believe them. Because the first fact of life and death, according to verse 1, is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He says the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. So everything is in the hands of God, and he knows everything. Many so-called wise people today will try to tell you that everything is random and that the universe has no meaning. But the preacher... The wisest person who ever lived never doubted God's existence or God's sovereignty over life that we see and life that we don't see. 
He goes on to say, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. In other words, this is just a natural part of life. That's what life is all about. Good things and bad things happen to all people. Jesus is the one who said that the Father makes the Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So love and falling out of love, giving your heart broken, I mean, those are all, that's all part of life, good and the bad, rain and sunshine, that's all part of life. And so we have to keep in mind that it is impossible to differentiate between good and bad people based only on external circumstances. And we can't predict what the future holds. Things may get better, or things may get worse. And it seems to matter little whether a person is righteous or unrighteous. But even when life seems totally random, remember that God is sovereign. And the second fact of life is that death is inevitable. In verse 2, he says the same thing, that we all share a common event or a common destiny, as some versions of the Bible says. It is the same for all, he says at the beginning of verse 2 and at the end of verse 3. The same event happens to all. So it doesn't matter whether you're tall or short, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're famous or infamous or unknown. As Benjamin Franklin famously said, the only two certainties in life are death and taxes. So you could try to prolong your life by the latest health craze, which I don't know if you've heard, but the latest health craze is taking an ice bath in like 40 degree weather for like five minutes. I've never tried it. I've heard it makes you feel better, but I don't know. I don't do it. Maybe it does prolong your life. I don't know. But you could be the healthiest person in the world. You could do every latest health craze. And you know what? You're still going to die whenever it's your time. And your life could end suddenly in an accident. You could be the healthiest person in the world. I mean, look down to verse 12. That's kind of the point he makes in that example in verse 12. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net. And like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. When he says evil, it's not necessarily morally evil, but like inopportune time. Like it doesn't make sense sort of time. Like you could be a healthy person and get into a car accident. It could be something totally out of your control. But you never know. We don't know when our life on earth is over. And either Jesus is going to come back first or death is something that we're all going to face, Christians or non-Christians. Look back at verse 2. It says the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean, ceremonially clean, or the ceremonially unclean. So as you can see, God doesn't order our world in a quid pro quo, a, a this for that type of operation. That we think if we do something for God, then we're going to have our life extended. You know, the, it's the fact that we live in a sinful world. When God told Adam and Eve that if they ate from the tree, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that in, on that day they will surely die. And yes, that is spiritual death, that we are eternally separated from God. But the word that he used there is, you will die today. It will be an immediate physical death. Well, they didn't die right away. We have time now. So we, you know, our time is short, but one of the consequences of living in a fallen world is the fact that our bodies are breaking down 
And eventually they will wear out and our life will end. And while we're on our journeys of life, the, this, the third fact of life and death is that life is unpredictable or uncertain. So not only can we not extend our life, we don't always understand why things are happening in our life. And we all have asked ourselves that question, why, God? Why is this happening? You know, it, my life is it's taken a turn that I didn't expect. Sometimes we say that. I never expected this to be happening in my life. Well, we can't assume that if things are going well, that God is blessing us. And if things are going wrong, it's because I'm being punished by God. And that's the wrong things that sometimes we assume. Prosperity does not equal blessing, and adversity and affliction does not necessarily evil. Suffering sometimes happens. Think of the, uh, Job. From Job's perspective, he didn't know why he was suffering at all. It wasn't you know, until later that he found out. And that suffering had some kind of purpose. We don't even know exactly why um, God chose to allow Job to go through that. But part of it was educational for Job. Right? He understood who God was a little bit. He thought he knew God, but then he began to question God. And, you know, if you want to be humble, look at God's response to Job at the end of Job, where God basically says, where were you when I formed the oceans? If you think you're so smart, where were you when I put the snow into the clouds? Do you cause it to rain? Who do you think you are questioning me? Sometimes suffering is revelational. And sometimes God's trying to reveal his plans through suffering. Think about Hosea. He suffered, um, he suffered in the fact that his wife left him. His wife com committed adultery, and it was a way for Hosea to understand that in the same way God's people committed adultery against him when they committed idolatry and worshipped other gods when they turned away from him. And Hosea wrote about that. And it was a way for God to communicate to his people, this is what you're doing to me when you're committing idolatry. Some suffering is for the glory of God that we don't know. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples in John chapter 9, and they saw a man who was blind. And so they assumed that he sinned, or his parents sinned. There was a reason, there was a cause and effect. Something caused this man to be born blind. And that's how they viewed the world. That's how they understood the world. And sometimes we think of the same way. And so they asked that question to Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And what did Jesus say? Neither one. Think about that. Neither one. Nobody sinned. But this is to be revealed in his life, that God's glory will be revealed in his life so that the works of God may be displayed in him. That's why the man was born blind. That's why he was suffering. And most importantly, look at the sacrifice that Jesus made as the suffering servant on the cross. He bore a great pain. He bore our sins on the cross for us. Suffering is never meaningless. We might not have the answers to why we suffer pain, but God knows. And maybe God is trying to get our attention. C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. Right. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So whether it's our individual life, whether it's our emotional life, or our physical life, or maybe on a grand scale, maybe God is trying to get some people's attention, and he's allowing pain and suffering and maybe he wants to shout to us 
And the only way he can get our attention is through pain. You know, when you think you got this life figured out, that's whenever we start to think that we know too much, right? We get a big head. My grandma would say, you're getting too big for your britches. That's when you think you've got it. And what do we do? Then we turn away from God and we stop trusting in him. And so it's really to our benefit that God sometimes gets our attention through a way that might seem painful at the moment, but it's going to result in an eternal weight of glory in our life. And that God is going to be glorified in our lives through those difficult situations. And there are times in our life when we don't have all the answers. Yeah, I think there's going to be a time at some point in each one of our lives when we're going to cry out to God, why? Why is this happening to me? And all we get back is silence sometimes. Because God never promised to reveal everything to us of what he's doing in our life. But in the end, there's going to be a day when God is going to be fully revealed in our lives and we're going to be fully glorified in his presence and he is going to get glorified in our lives where we can be able to see the big picture of what we're going through. And so we need to continue to trust in God through difficult circumstances when things aren't making sense. Look at verse 11 here. Because when things don't make sense, look at that, verse 11. It says, uh, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, chance there means not randomness, but God's providence happens to them all. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that the strongest, the quickest, the richest, the wisest, or the most favorite person is going to come out on top. So if we were organizing the world, we might say, well, yeah, you know, you know, X equals Y. It makes sense. That's what's going to happen. You know, the fastest person is going to win the race. The strongest person is going to win the competition. The wisest person is going to do this or that. Like, but that doesn't always happen, right? It doesn't always result in that way. And he goes on to give an example of how sometimes, you know, life is what it is. In verse 13, he gives this example of wisdom under the sun. There was a little city, he said, in verse 14, with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. That would be like a ramp of dirt up to the wall of a city where the walls were meant to protect, protect the city. If a conquering army was going to take it out, they would build... It's called siege works. They would build a dirt ramp all the way up to the top of the walls. It would take some time, but eventually you would take the city. And he said, but there was found in the city, verse 15, a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Amazing, right? A small city against a great king, but no one remembered that poor man. No one remembered him. A wise man saved the city, but he was quickly forgotten. And that's just the way... Life is sometimes. Uh, somebody that, that was nobody really paid attention to does a great thing, but yet, again, at the end of the day, nobody remembered his, him. And so, you know, you might be sitting there thinking, this is the worst sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> Should we just give up, right, and not do anything with our life? Is that the point that the preacher is trying to get across? Some people think that that's how Ecclesiastes was written, as a, uh, well, this is what you don't want to do type of book. But I don't think that's the point at all, because the fact of life number four is that wise living is better. Right. Wise living is still better. Look at verse 16. I say you, wisdom is better than might. 
Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys them both, or one sinner destroys much good. So yeah, a sinner is, can do a lot of damage, but it's better to be quiet and wise than be a loud ruler over a bunch of fools. So don't give up getting godly wisdom and don't give up on life. You see, this, the fifth fact of life here comes from the key verse in this, which I think is the key verse is verse 4. Look at verse 4 because the word but there, you know. But, he says, he who is joined with all the living has hope. So as long as you are alive, there's a chance for hope. Normally in the Old Testament, biblical hope is in reference to this expectation that God is going to do something. He's going to fulfill his promise. Like every time you see hope in the Bible, pretty much every time, it's referring to the completion of God's promise, that God's going to do something. But this word is a little different. This word is only used three times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And its exact meaning is uncertain. But it has the sense of confidence. So it doesn't describe this wonderful, glorious future awaiting us after death. But instead, it refers to what a person can expect or be confident in while they are still alive. So the preacher recognizes that there are certain advantages to being alive that those advantages and those opportunities are not going to be yours once you're dead. Being alive is a good thing. You have a life here and now. That's why he says that it is better to be a living dog than a dead lion. So back in Old Testament times, they did not have golden doodles. <laughs> they did not have lovable, soft, for the most part, obedient dogs who are, you know, are supposed to be man's best friend, right? Now we call dogs man's best friend because dogs are like some of the best pets to have, right? No, back then, dogs were nasty scavenger animals. They weren't pets. They were not loved. They were despised. People did not like having dogs. They were wild animals that ate dead animals, and there was something that you would shoo away. They weren't something that you would take into your home. And at the same time, lions were regal creatures. Kings would carve lions into the sides of their thrones, kind of like lions are still today. But lions were amazing. They were the king of the jungle still. Like, they were regal creatures, so you couldn't think of two polar opposite animals than to think of a dog versus a lion. But he rightly says, it's still better to be a living dog than a dead, highly admired yet dead lion, correct? So as long as you are alive, there, it, that's good. You have time. One of the great hopes is you have time to get right with God. If you aren't sure of your salvation, then you have time today to repent and trust in Jesus for your eternal life. Because once you're dead, that means time's up. There's no overtime. There's no second chance. This is it. God has given you the life today in order to put your trust in him, to recognize that you are rebelling against him, and to put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, for your salvation, for eternal life. And that's what we see in verses 5 and 6. It says, uh, verse 5 says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, and for the memory of them is forgotten. 
Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So once you're dead, there is no reincarnation. There is no second life on earth. But it's not just about what you get in this life. What the author is trying to get across, and what I think we can see in all of Scripture, is that you experience real hope in this life and in the life to come when your hope is in God. You can experience real hope in this life, in the life to come. I mean, real life when you put your hope in God. And that this is not from this part, but a fact of life, number six, is that living with real hope comes from being born again. And the word living hope reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1. He begins his book, his letter, 1 Peter says in verse 3, blessed be the hope and blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, we can inherit eternal life and a living hope. So the reason that we can have hope the reason that we can know that we are alive is because we are alive in Christ. We are united with him in his death and in his resurrection to eternal life. And then the great news too is the, the fact of life number seven is that true enjoyment in this life is only possible and will only come to you after you have trusted in Christ for your eternal life. Look in uh, Ecclesiastes 9.7. It starts with the word Go. And that word go is an imperative, it's a command, to go and enjoy life. God has already approved of your enjoyment. This doesn't mean that God gives us unlimited approval of all of our actions, irrespective of what they are. It's not a license to go and sin all you want. You know how I know this is because sin is what brings death. So why would you go down the sinful road of death when you know that that's not leading to anywhere? So he does say go and experience life, but now experience true life that leads to eternal life. But he says go and enjoy the good gifts that God has given to you because God has given to you to enjoy those things. It's his intention that those gifts that God gives is to bring us pleasure and enjoyment. So stop moping around and looking depressed all the time because you think that God doesn't want you to enjoy life. When you become a Christian, you realize that those sinful things weren't bringing you true life. They weren't bringing you life. And that's part of being a Christian is admitting that you're a sinner and that what your choices were leading to death. And so realize that God has created you to enjoy real life. And you get that when you realize that life is a gift from God. That life is not about chance. It's not about random. It's not about unknowns and uncertainties in the universe what's the universe trying to tell us well God has revealed himself to us so that's what gives you hope and life so he says go and that's a command with some urgency there eat bread with joy and drink wine with a glad heart as we share table fellowship with one another as we break fresh bread and sip fine wine and taste all the other good food and drink that God provides we are commanded to enjoy that with pleasure with God's joy in our hearts. And then he goes on to talk about the celebration because he doesn't just stop with food and drink. Verse 8 says, Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. 
White garments were their version of dress-up clothes. That was like the nice clothes that they would put on. If you were going to have a festive occasion to celebrate something, you would put on a, ro a white robe. So whenever there was like a parade for war heroes, they would wear white. If a slave was to be released on the day of their freedom, they wore white. When the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would wear white. So to put on this in, in our world today, that's like it's time to go out and party, right? It's time to get dressed up. Maybe it's a wedding reception, you know? We get dressed up. We take our prom pictures, we call it, you know? We, did, well, we go out on the dance floor and have some fun. And he's telling you, go, let your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. That is referring to sweet perfume. Because back then, they didn't bathe every day. So they were kind of stinky. And you know what? In a hot climate, they needed to put on some oil and perfume when they were going to go party. Because they were going to be, you know, he says, get dressed up. Go and enjoy life together. Enjoy the party. And then in verse 9, he goes on and says, enjoy life with your wife. Enjoy your family that God has given to you. Do fun things together. When one of my kids was really little, I remember when they would put, tuck him into bed, he would say, Daddy, I love you, and I love doing fun things with you. And I said, I told, what did I tell Misha? What did I tell you? I said, I love that age, you know, when they were, they were little. And I said, I, would, I love you too, buddy, and I love doing fun things with you too. You know, that is a gift from God to enjoy your friends, enjoy your family that you love and that you love doing fun things with. That's what a wonderful gift from God that he gives to us. So Solomon is encouraging us to enjoy this life. However, the only one who can truly, truly enjoy this life is the one who is a Christian, who is in a right relationship with God, who knows that our lives are first of all about God and then it's about our family. And we can't worship anybody, even our family, and put that person above God in our life. And we are the ones, Christians are the ones, who know that life is short and that all of life is a, truly a gift from God. We've been watching that, um, an old show called Alone, and it's about these group of people like, who individually go out into the wilderness and they try to survive with just like 10 survival items. But the thing that really gets it, not necessarily is that you can't get food or water, it's people give up because they're tired of being alone. And they're always like putting, you know, graphics on the screen saying, being alone for too long has actually caused people to go crazy. You are not meant to be alone. That's not, you're not created to be alone. You're created to be with other people. And one of the video diaries that people always say is like, I can't wait to see my loved ones. Can't wait to see my kids. Can't wait to see my wife. Can't wait to see my mom. One person quit because he said, I got to go see my mom. I got to call my mom. I got to know how she's doing. She's going through cancer treatments. I can't be out here any longer. And so it wasn't about food or water. It wasn't about surviving in the wilderness. It was about saying, I, I realize what's important. They would go in the video and say, now I know what's really important. It's not, about, it's not about me. It's about the people in my life. And it took me getting out here into the wild. Forget about the prize money. You know, I've learned what I, I came out here to learn. And it was really cool. There were some, you could tell there were some Christians on there who would pray and say, God, I thank you for letting me experience this, for being in your creation. Because it is... God made us to be with other people. God gives us good gifts to enjoy. And then God even gives us work. I mean, Ecclesiastes talks a lot about work. Verse 9, he says, Enjoy your toil at which you toil under the sun. 
In other words, everything that God sets you to do, do what God puts you to do. And don't waste time saying, well, I, I wish I was doing, you know, I, it's going to ruin your, it's going to steal your joy if you're all the time saying, I wish I was doing this over there. You know, I wish I was living over there or doing this over there or maybe doing this over there. Like, if you're always hoping for something else that you don't have, experience, relationship, job, situation, if that's where your hope is always going to be on something you don't have, it's always going to steal your joy. And what he says here is set your hand to the plow that God has in front of you. And whatever God sets you to do, do it with all of your might. You, when uh, Charles Spurgeon was preaching through this sermon, uh, preaching a, 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 a sermon through this passage, he got to this part, and somebody came up to him afterward and said, my, um, and said, I always dreamed of, of preaching under a tr tree in India, like in a faraway country, I'm preaching under a tree. And Spurgeon told him, my dear fellow, why don't you try the streets of London first and see where that takes you? <laughs> like, you want to go preach over there, why don't you preach where God has you, first of all? That's what you ought to be doing. You ought to set your hand and all your strength to what God has before you. That's what he says right here and, and teaches us in this, is that, verse 10, whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. It reminds me of Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. So in conclusion, the preacher here, his encouragement is for all of us to enjoy life, food, drink, family, and work, because this is the time that we have right before us. Jesus said to work while it is still light, because the time is coming when there will be darkness and you won't have time. Don't waste your days. Don't waste your hours. You know, we only get a day like this once a year. We only get to add an hour to the day one time, right? And they're going to take it back from us in the spring, all right? I know you wish it was extra. Oh, I wish we had this. has been a great morning. I wish we had this every day, right? An extra hour, just, or even randomly. Just throw in an extra hour sometimes. No, that's not how it works. So don't squander the free hour that you got. The time is now. The word shiol right there is a, a synonym for the grave because there are only two certainties in life. And he has nothing to say about taxes. The only certainty in life that we know from the scripture here is, is, is the fact that our life is going to end someday. This is the month that three years ago, my mom died. My mom went into the hospital and they, she had water on her heart and they said, oh, pretty simple procedure, you know, we'll just take the water off of her heart. But we didn't know that, that was the, we weren't gonna see her again that she had a heart attack after the procedure in the middle of the night. And we didn't know that was going to happen, but we know and we trust that it was in God's time. My mom used to have a quote on her mirror in the living room that she saw every day. This is a quote from Corey Ten Boom that said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. We don't know what the future will hold. And this life is full of uncertainties. But as we walk with Jesus and put our trust in God, we can fully enjoy life and have true hope. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would help us to trust in you through uncertainties in life. God, we ask that you would uh, teach us not to go to um, other things, other people, other situations, and just 
And for us to say, you know what, if I could just get over there or do this or have that, then things would make sense. But help us to always to put all of our trust in you and then help us to enjoy the good gifts that you've given to us. And we thank you for those. May you be glorified in everything that we say, do, eat, drink, and live. Lord, may you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.